hello out there to all you people listening in to hear us. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. This is Fried Squirms. We're here to get stoned and talk about horror movies. This week, Tetsuo 2, The Body Hammer. Is it the? Is it just Body Hammer? It's just Body Hammer. Tetsuo 2, colon, Body Hammer. (laughs) We're going to get to that before too long. You know what it is, though. If you're here listening to us, we got to start off by getting stoned. We got to get to our green hits. Danny, what is this that I loaded up today? All right. So today, unfortunately, I didn't have any J's, but I did stop by Flower, picked up some flour. And with that, I did pick up the mint chocolate chip strain. Now, this is a evenly balanced hybrid. It is created through the crossing of the Sin Mint cookies with the infamous Green Ribbon BX strain. These buds, they say they pack a flavor you know and love from the Sin Mint cookies together with the energetic high of the Green Ribbon. The flavors on these, you're going to get more of like an herbal, minty, nutty, and woody flavor along with earthy, herbal, pine, and spicy aromas. And over at Flower, their THC is clocking in right at 23.5%. I wish I had a little bit more information on the terpenes, but being that it's a hybrid, I'm sure there'll be some nice terps in that guy. Yeah, well, I lucked out, and I got over to Flower before they ran out of J's. They had only one choice, though. So you got that choice. Not that it's bad. I'm pretty sure we've brought it on the show before, but some Nick the Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Sativa Dominant, grown from Eastside OG and Fire 18. You know what? I just found something called Nick the Bruiser, but as I'm looking at it, it's obviously not the same one. So I don't know much of the info about this, and shit's being slow to load. So it's Tiva. Have fun. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Shit, I know we've had it before. We like, have. It, we, it's just been a little while since we've had it on the it, show. Intrepid listeners, like, Stephen, you might be able to pull it from, out of your fucking ass now that you've listened <laughs> to all of the episodes since you're listening to this, because you listen to all the episodes. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. I don't know. If somebody really wants to figure it out, you can start going through our back catalog, and we thank you for it and for all the re-listens. Absolutely. But we definitely have brought Nick the Bruiser before, just don't have the info. That being said, along with re-listens, we'd also like to remind you that we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash fried squirms. At even the lowest level of a dollar a month, you'd be getting this last week. You get to that middle level, you start getting our Patreon-only episodes, and we're starting to amass a few Man, of those due, the, due to fun. us doing the, the reanimateds. They've it's been fun. It's been a blast. That last one I thought was a good time. Absolutely, dude. And I've had a really fun time revisiting all of those films. Yeah, all of them have been fun revisits. I think the last one was the best. I don't know. The way I'm remembering it, I feel like it's maybe our best one yet. I think we're getting a lot better with uh, yeah honing it in. So check that out, people. And then up at the top, you got the Discord. You could be chatting with us right now, asking us all sorts of questions. Like, what's Nick the Bruiser? What's Nick? <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, motherfuckers, like, we just mm, told you. Mm. <laughs> I'd be like, how hard did you jerk down? to <laughs> That's what I got. Patreon.com slash fried squirms. Check that out. I say it's time for us to get past this little... You know, I have still haven't hit this. I'm going to hit this first and make this green hits official. Hear that, people? <laughs> mm, that's the sound of weed. All right, now that the green hits are official, 
let's get on into, once again, the name of this section is all too apt, the guts and bolts of Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts. Who and what went into Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer? Spoiler free. You could probably grow a spoiler, right? Anyway, <laughs> spoiler free. We'll start off with our spoiler free setup for what this movie is. Oh, fuck me. I should have thought of this harder. A Japanese man and his family are harassed by some cyborg thugs. And after a repeated instance and a tragedy involving his son, things happen. I was going to say a quest for revenge happens, which it does kind of happen, but that doesn't come first. So things happen. <laughs> I know we're trying to keep it spoiler for you, right? So you, it's a tough one, but it's okay. I think you did a good job. Yeah. Oh, so. maybe here's the here's spoiler free setup. If you don't know and haven't figured out by the title, it's a Japanese cyberpunk body horror. That's why, like, things happen have a way different connotation than <laughs> yeah. with a lot of other movies. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot more specific there. Mm -hmm. So, All right, now, we do like talking about the cast and crew from week to week. And this is a gentleman we've actually talked about several different times. Two times because of his director credits and one time actually because of his acting mm -hmm. credits. So with that being said, we're talking about Shinya Tsukamoto. We talked about him back on episode 87. We talked about him because of Ichi the Killer when he acted in that film. We talked about it because Jeff was our guest on Test Your Fright, our second segment with that. Mm -hmm. And we also talked about Shinya because he directed Tetsuo, the Iron Man, back on episode 110. And what also, it was that long yeah, ago? no, this is crazy too. Episode 180, we talked about him again because he directed Gemini. Which is fantastic. Yeah, and I'm like, damn, how how was that almost, yeah, it was 90 episodes ago. How many more movies of his do we have yet to cover that fit in? Do well, all of his, are all of his horror? Pretty close. I want to say Not he has, all, a, but what, he like has two that aren't, something like that, maybe? He has quite a bit. So okay. with that, I'll kind of get a little bit into his filmography. So... One film I've actually been keeping my eyes out on, mostly because... Oh, wait, he has more than I thought he did. Yeah. yeah okay. The same company who brought out Gemini, who's Mondo Macabro, they also put out Hiroku, the Goblin. It's a film mm. I'm looking for. All right, now he's also directed Tokyo Fist, a film I started watching this week. He's also done Bullet Ballet, A Snake of June, a film I highly recommend. The films Vital, the film Haze, Nightmare Detectives 1 and 2. He's also the director of Tetsuo, The Bullet Man, Kotoku, Fires on the Plane, and the film Killing. Now, there's a short, actually two of them I want to bring up, and I'll bring up a little bit later on more extensively in the next section, but he also directed Futsu Saizu no Kaijen and The Adventure of Denchu Kozo, which are kind of the impetus for Tetsuo, so I'll talk about that a little bit later on. Okay. All right, so moving forward, he's also the writer on this. Cinematographers include Shinya. Fimukazu Oda and Katsunori Yokoyama. These are really the only credited note for both people. All right, editor is also Shinya Tsukamoto. Music's actually done by a gentleman we've talked about before. That is Chu Ishikawa. We talked about them back on episode 110 for Tetsuo. The Iron Man also on episode 180 on Gemini. A few other things of note as far as their composing credits. 
helped on Tokyo Fist, also helped on Fudo to the New Generation back in 96, Bullet Ballet, Dead or Alive Part 2. He also helped on A Snake of June, Vital, Haze, both Nightmares, Detective 1 and 2, and the film Pet Peeve along with Fires on the Plane. All right, we have special effects done by Akira Fukawa. They help with the special effects makeup. They also are known for their work on Tokyo Fist. We have Ken Takahama. He helped with the special effects makeup. And Takashi Oda, they helped with the dummy effects. We didn't talk about them as far as their credits, but they did help with the dummy effects on Gemini, which is the episode 180 I talked about earlier. Mm. A few things else I wanted to talk about as far as some of those dummy effects, which is kind of neat. They helped on Hiroku the Goblin. They helped on Bullet Ballet, Tokyo Fist, Snake of June, which, I mean, they're pretty much all, at this point, Shinya films. Also, Shinobi, Hearts Under, which is kind of neat as well. Produced by Hiromi Ihara, Fumio Kurakawa, Fumanori Shishiro, and Nobuo Takeuchi. Production companies of this were F2, Kaiju Theaters, and Toshiba EMI. Distributors for this are Theirs Enterprise they helped for the 1992 Japanese theatrical release, and Manga Entertainment helped for the 1997 United States for all media. Release dates on this were February 1992 at the Fantas Porto Film Festival in Portugal, in October 3rd, 1992 in Japan. And a tagline is actually a line spoken out of the film, but that is, destruction is all I need. Okay. All right. So moving into our cast, gentlemen we've talked about before, but we have Tomoro Taguchi. He plays the role of Tanaguchi Tomo. This gentleman was the one of the leads, I should say, in Tetsuo. He was also in Gemini back on episode 180. A few other films of note from him because he's got some really cool stuff. Oh, dang. This dude was in, I think I talked about this before, but he was in Guinea Pig 6, Android of Notre Dame, which okay. is a part of the Japanese Guinea Pig film collection, mm-hmm. which is pretty wild. All right. A few other things of note. He was also in Tokyo Blood, which was um, a Shinya film. He was in Angel Dust. He was in Love Letter. He was also in such things as uh, Sinjuku Triad Society, which pretty dope-ass film. He was also in Gamera 2, Attack of the Legion. He was also in Fudo. He was in Ignatius. Yeah, he's been in The Eel. So he's been in some really cool, interesting Japanese horror films as well. All right, moving forward, we've got Shinya Tsukamoto once again. He plays the role of Yatsu, which means the guy. Like I said, if you want to get into his filmography... Check it out. He's been in a lot of films. All right, we have Nobu Kanawaka. She plays the role of Kana. She was also in Tetsuo back on episode 110. She was also in The Adventure of Denchu Kozo. She's in Bullet Ballet in the film A Blue Automobile. All right, we have Gim Sujin. They play the role of Tanaguchi's father in this film. All right, we actually talked about him way back on episode 180 in Gemini. I believe he's a detective in the film. He was also in Bullet Ballet in the film Nightmare Detective. We have Hideaki Tezuka. He was one of the skinheads. He's actually the big skinhead. Uh, okay. He lent his voice as the character I or A and uh, the Naruto Shippuden series. Um, most notably, probably the fourth Rakage or Rakakage. Okay. All right, we have uh, Tumo Asada. He plays young skinhead. Kinosuke Tomioka plays the role of Minori, and we have last but not least, Tori Uman Utozawa plays the role of the mad scientist. A few films of note from him are the films Dreams and Rhapsody in August. So that rounds out our cast and crew. Give us a brief setup. Should give our listeners some warnings. 
Warnings, it's a Japanese cyberpunk body horror. That's <laughs> like, what more do you want? Last night, my girlfriend was asking me, oh, what movie are you guys doing this week? And I was like, Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. She's like, that means nothing to me. I go, <laughs> it means everything to me. <laughs> I go, Japanese cyberpunk body horror. She's like, take all of those words back. <laughs> I don't want any of that. <laughs> take all those words back. <laughs> Japanese cyberpunk horror, yeah, I mean... That's what you're going to get. So what does that entail? I mean, we're going to have gore. We're going to have body horror, like body transformation yeah. shit. So there's a lot there's, of body fusion stuff. For once, I mean oh, this man. in two senses of the word. There's gunplay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. There I think are, that's the first time I've got to say gunplay in more than one sense. We do have to say this is there is implied child violence. We don't see mm -hmm. it, but you definitely know it happened. Yes. So if you're sensitive to that, heads up. There's... Arms up. There's some sexy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely that. I mean, there's bits of, like, psychedelia and stuff like yeah, that, too, that might throw people... Yeah, exactly. Could throw you a little bit. Japanese cyberpunk body horror. I know. I was like, language is... Eh. Subtitles. Right. Subtitles. Unless you speak Japanese. It seems, yeah. It's different. It seems like the worst. Maybe bastard. <laughs> bastard. I <was> <laughs> bastard. I would, yeah. I want to say that that might be the worst thing I remember so, seeing is bastard. So. Yeah. <laughs> but that's like, I think language is the least of the concerns. <laughs> yeah. <this> yo. <laughs> so. <laughs> that. I guess. Yeah. That's. I don't know how to better warn somebody. It's like, how do you explain Man, somebody wanted me to explain the first movie the other day. Shit wasn't happening. We didn't have that amount of time. No, it's like, oof. Yeah, no, it's... That is a hard one to... It's like, you need context. Yeah. So, this is the best we can do if you have no context. <laughs> Good point. If you have context, you know we tried. You know we tried. With that in mind, let's get on to where we can just talk about fucking spoilers and find out how Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? Alright, man. Tetsuo 2. I've been, I've been looking forward to this since we watched Tetsuo 1. Like, I had technically seen it before, but that might as well have been my first time last time, as far as I'm concerned. Plus, re just really checking it out and like paying attention to it because i consider that film to be fucking damn near a masterpiece yeah it's hard to argue with that and the influence it has had on the subgenre itself was quite tremendous i think that's one of the things like that first one is maybe one of the greatest horror movies i've ever seen greatest rather than best because there's still a, like you can tell it's done on like a shoestring budget without a doubt and, like, there's things other movies do better. But when you take in how yeah. good it is, plus the impact it's had. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's... Culturally, it's a very significant film. I think not only in Japan, but for Western audiences, too. Because it gave us another idea of what that could be. Because mm -hmm. I think, for the most part, people are more familiar with... Blade Runner, and probably, like, Akira, mm -hmm. things of that nature, you know? 
probably even Videodrome from David Cronenberg has a little bit cyberpunk feel to yeah, it, yeah. you know, because of the body horror element and whatnot. But point being is like this is a whole different take on it. And like I said, it's interesting to think about some of the films we've done that have, I mean, you can tell they were influenced by this film. Like mm-hmm. Tokyo War Police is a prime example of that. Absolutely. I mean, it's pretty obvious, you know. Which is funny because we also did, what was it, um, Vampire Girl versus Frankenstein Girl? Yeah. So, I mean, something as silly as that is still rooted in something like Tetsuo. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, loved that first one, considered a masterpiece, maybe one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Not just because yeah, of how no, good it is, but man. because of how it essentially set up an entire subgenre. I know there was more than just that. Like, we've talked about how old school 964 Pinocchio is. And yeah, shit, but exactly. That's another one as well. But definitely the outsized portion of the influence is from Tetsuo. So how do you follow that up? Like, can Body Hammer be as good? My answer? I fucking love this movie, dude. This, this was fucking good. Honestly, did surprise me in a good way. It didn't surprise me like, oh, man, this was bad. No, I was... It's like, all right, I was really looking forward to hearing what you had to say. It reminds me of two different things. First one is it reminds me of Evil Dead. Okay. Where, in a lot of ways, the first two movies are kind of just the same movie, but the second one, they kind of just know what they're doing better. I don't think that's that's quite the case in this one. No, but... They're they're similar... But I think yeah. the a lot of the differences were very intentional. <laughs> but the other thing it reminded me of was the Man With No Name trilogy. Mm. How they're all kind of just different retellings of the same story using the same characters. I think that's a good analogy to use, yeah, for this. Which you can then see with, like, maybe not even so much the original Dollars trilogy. Mm-hmm. But maybe even a little bit more the way that Robert Rodriguez later did it with the Desperado El Mariachi trilogy, the the Mexican Dollars trilogy, where like the first two movies are kind of the same story, but they aren't. No, I know you're saying. In fact, the second one is very dependent on events that (laughs) happened in the first one. That's funny. But then the third one kind of assumes that the first two happened, but with differences in details. Interesting. But nonetheless, yeah. Anyway, that's kind of what it reminds me, because this one follows a lot of the same beats as... It does. The first one. It does. The characters are the same, essentially. There's not much difference, really. Like, there's, there's no reason why... Tomo isn't the salary man from the first one. Yeah, I mean, the same guy, but yeah. The metal fetishist. It's more fleshed out. Yeah. That's what it kind of feels like. Like, these characters are definitely more fleshed out. Which, I won't say it's a good or a bad thing. It's just, it, that's what it is in this story. But still telling a different story. Yes. Yes. It's not like the first one was just polished up. This one is definitely dealing with different themes in some cases a lot more straightforward Mm -hmm. i think even though there is still some weird underlying sexual things it's not nearly as sexual as the first one was right and especially (laughs) not nearly as homoerotic as the first one was yeah not even close it has a little bit but not as much yeah Mm -hmm. but i don't think that takes away from it it's just 
lets it stand on its own a little bit. And I feel like in a lot of ways I was able to see where this probably also influenced things that came after. Although yeah, I also don't know my history of some of uh, like anime, manga, and manga-inspired anime and live-action work. Like a lot of it, I can't put on a timeline, so I'm not sure what things would necessarily always fall yeah, after either this. preceded or mm -hmm. yeah, superseded, etc. Because there's one thing, like one of my notes, I was like, "Oh shit, I've seen this before," and I looked it up, and what I thought that maybe the other movie did it as a reference to this, but it maybe was the other way around. Maybe has nothing in common, but like we're in the spoiler section now. When, like, the fucking crazy-ass grin that he gets on his face when he starts fucking raging out, yeah. I'm like, that's RoboCop 3. That's funny. It started making me think of, like, Majin Buu from <laughs> Dragon Ball Z and oh, stuff. Oh, shit, okay. Just the, the forehead. Like, oh, the, I the can see, yeah, forehead the forehead. Looks. Yeah, not necessarily the character, but... Um, I, I was thinking, like, the fucking grin, yeah, the grin and, definitely. like, the unmoving of the face reminded me of the fucking samurai fucking, or not samurai, you know, the fucking, the Japanese robots yeah. at, God, in RoboCop 3. Yeah. And when they but, start fucking cracking out. That's a good way of looking at it. But yep. RoboCop 3 came first. Solid point. That's By, like, two point. years. Solid point. Damn. Those movies have been out for a while. <laughs> yeah, shit. no shit, right? <laughs> That's funny. Man. I got a couple of different things out of this film and something I, I noticed probably the more I watch his films, I think about Tetsuo. Of course we did Gemini. Gemini is probably not a good example of it, but snake of it's June, an adaptation, right? Snake of June is definitely one. And I started in on Tokyo fist, right? Okay. So at this point, like you were getting Tokyo fisted. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. But I was going to say, I've got f basically four films out of the five I've seen of his to base something off of. And what I mean by that is he likes to use like these blue, gray and mm -hmm. red filters to convey like certain tones. And that's a little bit of a signature from him. And I like that in a sense too, in this film, because there are certain sequences where I'm like, it makes me think of a certain time period when I see that, like a certain mm -hmm. aesthetic it has. And I, what I feel like he's trying to convey in a sense is, kind of like this modern world of, of concrete and steel and almost this, this polish mm -hmm. to something that's not that's not necessarily natural it's you know it's in the middle of, of tokyo is where all this stuff is shot so i'm going to use somebody to reference to kind of get to what i mean by what i'm getting at too what the way he's using these tones which is kind of neat is uh roger ebert he uh, reviewed this and he gave it a pretty favorable rating. Mm -hmm. right? And he talked about the fact that Shinya grew up where Tokyo still had like open green spaces in the downtown areas. But of course, with the post-industrialization of Japan and stuff like that. And another thing I found it was interesting was. Yeah, in, Tokyo in, in a lot of ways might as well look like a cyberpunk city now. Right. And that's kind of what I'm saying is. There was like this transition from the like we we talked about some other Japanese films like like the old Japan, and more specifically in this case Tokyo, where it's becoming more modern and more industrialized, and you're getting away from nature and you're kind of having this influx of technology along with 
construction, mm-hmm. which involves steel and all this other stuff. And like, I've never been there, so I have nothing but like images and like taking in media to try to base this on. But it seems to me that like the touristy sections are kind of like fucking polished cyberpunk areas where everything's all nice and clean, but fucking crazy digital and right. all sorts of crazy ass displays <laughs> and shit. And then when you move out of there, it's more just like the fucking almost dystopian, just like high rises, just bunch of people packed in concrete jungle until you get to the outside. I think like there's still like, Oh no, I mean like still natural. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, they do a good job. And they're still like, like they got to have some sort of half. It's, it's maybe like a strip of houses. Cause I know that you're not working with a ton of land, but like there's still like a suburbies suburbs type section. Right. I would like, imagine. So yeah. I mean, I'll, if I only because so. somebody rich enough wants to maintain that kind of like, Probably aesthetic or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Who knows? But that was something I've noticed throughout his film. And he also does an interesting thing where he'll... Maybe not suburbs the way we think of it. No, 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 no. I'm not saying like, like a lawn out there. Uh, uh, no, not you're saying. No. What, what I was getting at, he mm-hmm. likes to use a character, like in this case, it could be the business guy. But he'll kind of juxtapose that character in a very busy setting and make them look alone or isolated in this very busy world. And then he will isolate them in like these tunnels or underground settings and stuff like that, which is really cool. I think even when we talked about the first Tetsuo, we talked about how it really seemed to be dealing with like an idea of like urban loneliness. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Of being packed in. Surrounded by all these people, but still being disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a good way of conveying it in a film sense, in an artistic sense. It's like it's not like a rocket scientist or anything to figure that out, but it's just the way that he does that. I think is it's kind of telling in his films because he tends to do it more often than not, which is okay. I mean, as long as I think he does it consistently and it's not like overdone to where it's like, okay, dude, it's actually like it makes sense in the context of the film you're watching. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like something he just throws in. But um, started noticing that, and <laughs> maybe it's my ear. I could be off a little bit, but some of the keyboard, like synth in this, there was some of it. I, I think it had to do more when Shinya Sukamoto's character entered. It was almost like a theme song for him. Mm-hmm. Like a, uh, but it sounded a little bit like Jörg Bootkreit's works. Oh, like maybe in Der Todesking, where you see those decaying of the body or something mm-hmm. like that, and. It almost has like this heightened feel to it, but then the rest felt almost like a video game mini boss or boss right, <laughs> kind right. of like score. So I was like, yeah, not or not like holy, but or even though by this time the actual musical movement would have been in full swing, it sounds like something super like proto industrial. Yeah, that's a good point too. Considering the bands that were mm-hmm. out around that time too, makes total sense. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. It makes me think about that time period, early 90s as well. Here's, I mean, we've kind of already alluded to this, but some certain scenes in this, like the uh, rooftop scenes, it's like, man, I wonder how much the Takashi was inspired to maybe use some of that and Nietzsche mm. and stuff like that, some of those shots. Right. Some of those settings. I was like, wow, even Tokyo Gore Police, I would imagine, was inspired by this, not only just because of, the whole body, you know, metamorphosis thing with the weapons and shit, weaponizing the body. But like I said, some of those 
sequences with the guys swooping down and shit like that. Well, I almost wondered for a minute if the other way around, if maybe the the first sort of longer chase that ends up running them through the group of people while they're going after the kid, the way it plays out, I was like, is this maybe influenced by 964 Pinocchio a little bit? I, probably, it could be. And I, I was actually wondering if maybe it was even Gorilla Shot, because it's just a super yeah. quick sequence That's anyway. It would not surprise me at, at, at all. Like, what's the point of getting all this location and all these fucking yeah. extras for bystanders for this 30 second shot where you run through them when you're doing it on the shoestring budget. That's, that's kind of why I'm, I'm wondering too. I mean, it makes sense like where he would use these actors or actresses and put them in a setting like that and just like, all right, I need you just to kind of, we're just going to get no this one else and is get out of there. Man, they're too fucking mm-hmm. busy to, to notice what you're doing. So yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> It at least wouldn't surprise me. It kind of looked like it. I can't say for sure that's right, what happened. Right, not definitively, but... Maybe by 95, <laughs> somebody was there making him play by the rules because, I mean, this was still done with a small budget, but it's also definitely done with a much larger budget than... Oh, uh, he, not- he noted that it was probably six to ten times a larger budget mm-hmm. than Tetsuo, which isn't saying a whole lot, but it's still significantly more than what he had. We talked about that, like... He basically did everything mm-hmm. along with, I mean, one of the actresses, like, she lent her apartment. I remember we talked about that, but, I mean, they, phew, they put everything they had into it. So, like, you're already having to hire all the guys to be the skinheads? Wow, that's a lot of people, too. <laughs> I'm thinking more and more, the more we talk about it, I think they did that chase fucking just freewheeling. Uh, well, it makes sense. It, it looked like some people Gorilla were cut style. off guard. Yeah. Like, what was going on? Just go with it. Go with it. <laughs> run, bitch, run. <laughs> I know, right? Just go with it. <laughs> I thought that was interesting, man. Like, uh, I know we we haven't really talked about the film itself, but, um, but to me, the interesting thing was, like, introducing, like, the family unit in this. Mm. That's another thing I, I started picking up on. Well, then because, you also get because, that it's, like, cycles of abuse. Yes, you get cycles of, of abuse. To me, also, it's like, man, he likes to use these family dynamics in his films as well usually it's like a long lost relative brother or you know Mm -hmm. things of that nature it's like okay okay i see he's playing with themes here and motifs and things of that nature so not surprising he uses it here but it's done pretty well it also felt to me and honestly this might just be because i recently reread the first few arcs of the Grendel comic book, which is admittedly by the author about this same thing. But it seemed to be kind of about rage and aggression and how that ripples out, how it's not just like an act. It has further ripples that cause other things to happen. That's a solid point. Yeah. I think uh, that is interesting. Like the, the rage this guy has what it causes, the damage it causes, it, it does, definitely has a rippling effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a far reach. It's interesting, man. That's something I noticed this time around, too. Like, when those skinheads do kidnap his son, like, they snatch his son, and we were talking about the chase that happens. Well, he gets punctured in the chest by whatever the hell it was. I mean, you know, we know what it is later on in the film, but I was like, man, that's interesting, because, man, little does he know the impact that's going to have on his family throughout the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Like the consequences. 
it's a interesting way of getting this person to um, express themselves, to create this weaponized version of themselves, which <laughs> you were talking about earlier too, which thinking about it now too is kind of neat, how their father started that whole thing, like trying to weaponize the body. Yeah. And was successful. This, right. Definitely was successful. They are living body weapons. Yes. And the one brother who carried on the legacy, if you will, was trying to get his brother back and to it to carry mm-hmm. on their father's legacy. <laughs> Although it, it does seem accidentally, right? Like Yatsu didn't actually have anything to do with bringing his brother in. No, nah, I don't think so. Well, not that's actually like explicitly hinted at. No, 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 no. I think I think you could maybe imply it, but it doesn't. I don't think it explicitly states it. It seems more like the henchman was like. This is who we're going after. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, very well could be just whatever. Would it be big skinhead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was like, we picked this guy. Yeah, it just seems like a especially because at the time he thought he was reporting to the mad scientist. Solid point. Yeah, or I don't know. Maybe they. I I guess they were kind of on Yatsu's side the entire time, but he was at least having to make a show of reporting to the mad scientist. I think so. I think there's. Little yeah, little dog and pony show there, if you mm-hmm. will. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of interesting to learn that throughout the film how that whole story intertwines. Like, why doesn't this guy remember anything prior to like what his eighth birthday? Malignant? Yeah, something like malignant. that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just that's like that's interesting, but that's kind of a you know a red flag, a telltale. It's like, oh, all right, what's going on with this guy? So, oh, shit, that reminds me. Second time through, and I'm wondering if you were trying to take a look at this detail, too, and what your call on it was. And I maybe skipping forward a little bit from the very beginning, but when he's hooked up to the machine, not the first time when they're explaining the shit, but when he actually starts to make his escape and Yatsu sees the screen... And he sees him escaping. And it seems to be that that's the moment where he realizes who he is. Mm. Did you notice what was on the screen? Because you only see it for like a half second. I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure. Okay. I was wondering if maybe you you stopped it at that moment or not. Because I wanted... Because I could... It's only a half second of footage. Like Probably not. You you stop it. I paused it. And I tried to figure it out. I think what he was seeing by that point was the memory of killing the father. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be what was on that screen, but you only yeah. get... Just a, yeah, okay. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. Yeah, anyway, I don't know why I got off on that tangent. No, no, no. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, no, little things like that, they do have those consequences that we might not have seen. You know, like I said, that kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of background, but it was there the whole time kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? All right, what I do enjoy about this film, what I thought was really interesting, comparatively, I'm not, I don't want to compare and contrast, but... It makes sense, in, you know, because we're talking about Tetsuo here. So, in Tetsuo, it was more of a an organic thing. Not that this is, isn't, but this guy was wholly unaware. He had this accident, right? Uh, mm-hmm. With the car and all that stuff, kind of reliving that. And then metal starts to appear on him and stuff. You know, that kind of stuff happens. His environment almost kind of takes him over. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one... This character is more 
influenced into expressing that. I mean, he was that to begin with. Now, I couldn't tell whether the movie... Like, I know that he doesn't have memories of before eight years old or whatever. Does he know that he can do that and he's mm. never... And he's held it back at times. That's a good point. Or has he just never been pushed to the limit and he doesn't know he can do that? That's, it's hard to, I mean, it doesn't, I know what you're saying. That's a good question because I think you could answer it right down the middle. Because the, mm-hmm. the film kind of is like, ah, it intimates at a lot of these things. But it doesn't really spell it out wholly because there's a lot of right. time missing in between that time. That's what I'm saying. So I don't know because I don't know what happened in between that time. I feel like it flavors his interactions with everybody if he knows that if he let, lets off the handle, he can do this. Man, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like, all it would take is his one rage. So I would probably say no, because if he raged in any kind of way, it would have expressed itself somehow. Mm-hmm. And whether it's his coworkers, his partner, you know, his wife, mm-hmm. his kid, whomever, people would have noticed it considering what we know about this guy at a certain point. Okay, I'm going to say he didn't know, and it was the circumstances of the incident with his son that unlocked the repressed memory. Mm-hmm. Although it was only something he was there for and not something he did. Let me think. He didn't know until then. I think I figured it out. So when he gets tricked into killing his kid, let's bring him up that for a second, because that was kind of the fucking the blood splatter all over fucking Jesus. big skinhead was crazy. That was fucking and like wild. hanging on to the fucking little arms and shit. Man, when I saw that, I was like, oh shit. This movie went there. Holy shit. Okay. I had to rewind that scene because I didn't catch what happened exactly to the kid. I didn't realize because I was getting fucking stoned and sort of... Oh, I get that. <laughs> it was too late, and but I was like, I need to watch this. Yeah. And then true. I need to watch it again. <laughs> but I was zoned out for a second, and I thought that because they were up on, like, a roof with all sorts of fucking, like, ventilation shit and stuff... And they got caught or something. Well, I thought, like, the dude had, like, lowered the kid into, like, a fucking industrial fan or something. And then I was like, shit, did I miss that? And I rewound it, and I'm like, oh, shit, he shot him. <laughs> I know, that was fucked. Because I think I had a similar moment where I was kind of like, yeah, dozing in and out, trying to watch it too late. And I was like, whoa, what the fuck happened here? Rewind, you're like, oh, shit, they fucked him up. <laughs> but the thing is with that scene is that when he does that, it's not just that he fucking shoots the kid and fucking fucks the kid up in a big bad way. I know, right? But his wife sees the whole thing. She's off to the side and she starts screaming. That's when mm. it cuts to him having a nightmare, and which, you know, he wakes up from the floor on and shit, and, like, his wife is acting all cold and shit, obviously. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> All things considered, right? But the nightmare has to do with him and his brother. And you only get, I think, a brief shot of it because that's still super early in the movie before you get the reveal later on with his dad. 
I want to say that there's like a brief shot of it, which is why you're able to link it up. But even if not, I think there's enough clues to indicate that that triggered the repressed memory of him watching his brother shoot the dog. I was about to say, because his mom, because his mom is in the same spot that his wife was in yeah, and has the sense. same reaction. Yeah, so say that it's mirroring that, and it would make sense that it would, you know, reveal this repressed memory, and mm-hmm. it's just coincidental that it played out this way. You know, like I said, to mirror an experience that he was not a part of, like his brother was the one who shot the, the dog. Where in this case, he shoots, but it's not the dog, it's his fucking kid. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's a really interesting artistic way of doing that, like mirroring those two. Because they don't show you that directly. You kind of got to put it together. No, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, that's really... It takes some thought to do that and to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. Not just to make a scene, you know what I mean? Just not to have a scene just to play it out for like a shock value, which it is when you find out what happened to the kid. But also, like you were saying, to unlock a memory after the series of events that just happened. Which means he didn't know before that moment. I know, that's that's wild, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's unlocking a very similar memory. <laughs> Like, what the fuck is happening right now? Can you imagine, like, if that were something that were to happen to someone in real life, like, what that would do to somebody? Right. I'm like, yo, what the fuck? History repeating itself. With all the shit on the roof, I've thought this before while watching movies, but if I'm ever in a situation where the bad guy has me almost pushed over the edge, like, I'm dying. Because I can't hang on for, like, a tenth of that long. He's hanging on by, like, the the very tips of his fingers. I can't hang on for a tenth that long. I'll hang on for a a couple seconds, but then you better be grabbing my ass. I know, and his wife was the one that held. I was like, all right, that was such a good kind of a moment where you let down your guard as a a viewer. You know, because, like, oh, they got the kid back. They're all safe. Okay, They dodged that encounter. I mean, he had this weird thing that happened to him, mm-hmm. right? And then they're back at home. Everything seems, you know, hunky-dory. And then he gets that fucking phone call. He's like, yeah, you shouldn't have left your fucking back door unlocked. And then, yeah, it leads to all this stuff. But, like, so even the chasing, that's what it reminded me a, a little bit of Ichi. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, I was like, man, I wonder how much that inspired some of that. Or maybe even just, it could be parallel thinking, like, because it's Tokyo, there's high-rises, I'm sure there's a slew of those all over the city. Well, it's after the first experience that he starts kind of feeling alone in the city. That's where you have the sort of the montage of all the people moving around him and shit. And and some of the more, some of the earlier like super trippy sequences too, which is started off with the kind of cheesy explosions. (laughs) Yeah. But then, like, that trans, like, goes into the dream of, like, the swimming, which inspires him to go work out. And that swimming sequence with that fucking blue filter was just so gorgeously shot. That's, I really like that, man. Yeah, it's, like I said, it reminded me of that time period. It really has a certain aesthetic to it, you know? Almost a cold feel, Mm -hmm. you know? Even though it's supposed to, uh, you know 
in a sense, they're, they're a family dynamic, they're a family unit sharing this experience together, but you can tell there's isolation amongst all of them. I'll tell you what, one of the things that makes me down with this movie is, like, it doesn't seem that pleasant in this movie, <laughs> like, but in general, I'm pretty down with transhumanism, and if that's combined with the fact that I can go get more swole at the gym at the drop of a fucking hat, it's like, okay, so be it. Sign me up. <laughs> I know. I'll shave my head. <laughs> Dude, what was wild was thinking about that. I was like, how how often do you see that where he started getting in, in shape, right? And you have a whole, like, gaggle of fucking dudes underground. Just, fucking muscle bros. Yeah, and I like how they're doing it. It's like a commercial mm-hmm. or a video, like a music video, where there are certain scenes that do feel, I mean, the, the end feels like right out of a music video. I love how, like, if you're paying attention to what some of them are lifting, it's supposed to be, like, indicating that they've already gotten some amount of superpower from all of this. Because, like, there's the one guy that's curling, like, the giant fucking right, pieces exactly. of fucking wreckage and yeah, shit. Yeah, they're starting to exhibit some super strength. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case for all of them. But it's also kind of funny because, like, 60% of them aren't even, like... Muscly, they're just skinny. Yeah, they're, some, they're just some skinny dudes. <laughs> they're just guys that like are skinny enough that it's almost impossible not to have the body strength to do a fucking pull up. Yeah, <laughs> that's a solid point. Like if you can lift a fork, you can lift yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. A lot of those guys probably aren't weighing like 125, 130 pounds. Yeah, I was like, because the first couple times you see the shots of them. They're kind of framed like, I don't know, like they're these huge fucking muscle bound. Like, oh, no, it's just mostly lean. Dude. And they're super like close up. So you can't really see like how big they are in comparison to anybody else or <laughs> like scenery or anything. Yeah. And it's once you start getting those wide shots, you're like, oh, these are just normal dudes. Like, I'm pretty yeah. sure I could take like 90 percent of these guys. A couple of them are in really fucking good shape, though. Solid a point. few of them are in really fucking good shape. Yeah, you so. can't deny that. But I, I know what you're saying though. It's it helps when you see uh, a wide shot. <laughs> That's funny. It, yeah, once he starts to, I guess in a way, kind of accept, I suppose, like what's happening. Once his wife gets kidnapped and he just goes to that bicycle sequence, mm-hmm. it's kind of silly, but also kind of neat in a way too. Almost has like a comic book feel. Maybe even like a, an, more like an animation film style way say, of doing that. A lot of this feels like a manga brought to life. It really does. Not necessarily like an anime brought to life. Because yeah, I think it feels like, because I feel like they're having to make up the in-betweens. Yeah. They're not yeah. adapting. It doesn't feel <laughs> like they're adapting something that's already moving. No. It feels like they're the ones having to figure that out. Granted, for 92 to, to do what they did, that's pretty ambitious. I mean, he already did mm-hmm. it before. We'd seen it before. But in this way, <laughs> on a fucking bike, chasing a car, and then, you know, also using buildings and things of that nature in those sequences, it's pretty interesting. I wonder what it must have been like seeing that on the street, just this <laughs> beat-up fucking car, and this dude... All cyberpunked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is going? What is going on? It's another day in Tokyo. So, oh shit. Uh, fucking big skinhead looked pretty fucking boss when he was all fucking weaponed out. Weaponed out. 
Man, those kills. And some of those shots of him just like stalking like the T-1000. Look good. Look good. Yeah, even when he runs back to headquarters, mm-hmm. he, even st- he still seems menacing, but of course, you got to, he knows. He's starting to rot, or he's starting to rust, right? Yeah. That's what that shit was. I think it settled it, or sunk in the second view that, oh, that's what's happening. These guys are deteriorating because they're reliant more, I guess, on their environment, or whereas this guy willed it, you know, like he was already. Oh, I, I caught it. Di- I got something else from it. No, that's so what I, what I think I caught the second time through is the serum to turn them fucking cyborg or however you want, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. was thought to be perfected by the mad scientist based on how he had mixed his formula with Tomo's blood and then regathering that and then written, you know, making a serum from that. The problem was, and what Yatsu figures out at the end, once they're all rusted out is that the scientist screwed up. He thought that he injected the serum into Tomo that mm-hmm. it worked without rusting, and so he was able to extract it. He didn't that. realize that it was from his natural inborn powers thanks to his dad. Yeah. And so the rust gun is still a rust gun, and he hadn't perfected his formula yet. No, it makes total sense. That's, that's what I'm getting at, too. It's because he already has this innately, like you said, it's it, their dad instilled that to weaponize them, so... No matter what you do with these other guys, they're not going to have that already in them. Their dad seemed like the original metal fetishist, right? Like he's that's what it sounds was basically, like. He was just waving his hand like a fucking magician and making this shit happen. I mean, he that's kind of interesting that they even preface it in the the movie that way, where you know it's like watch this, this is magic mm-hmm. or whatever that little opening it is. It's really neat. It would be interesting to see. I don't know. Maybe they do explore it in the third. Installment. I don't know for sure. Probably mm-hmm. not, but it's still interesting. I've heard Bullet Man isn't as good as I've the other the two. Same, but shit, if this is any indicator, I mean, even if it's half of this or Tetsuo, is still decent. Yeah. At this. Yeah. Point. At this point, I have yet to see something bad from Shinya. Likewise, likewise, to be quite frank. Like I don't feel like he could fall too far off the fucking cliff in making this shit. No, he's pretty consistent. And his vision, his storytelling, things like that. So I'm definitely going to, I mean, I'm sure we'll check it out on here at some point. But yeah, no, the shit, um, where was I at? Shit's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, once he, once, for me, once he really starts to embody the whole, you know, man, cyborg, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the melding of, of his environment. Just kind of yeah, when like he just so once gives his wife, that's what I say, rage. Yeah, once his wife gets kidnapped, that really triggers things off because uh, Yatsu, he sets that one guy up <laughs> to give him, quote-unquote, like an ultimatum. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, I got your wife. But he, I think he knows damn well that guy's going to rage. Like, he knows Tomo's going to rage and do what he's going to do. And he's like, yeah, he's, he hasn't changed. You know, so what can you do in that situation? And it's like, well, we find out their little duel was kind of interesting, the way that shit played out, too. Yeah. I was like, it's a little confusing. It's sped up. It's slowed down. There's a lot of 
stop motion kind of stuff. They're like physical duel. I could have done with like half of that because it was fine, but it wasn't the greatest thing. In right, the world. right, right. And I'm like, it's what, what are they trying to say? Like exactly? Yatsu's quote unquote death. <laughs> and how he still kind of ends up winning the battle in the end, in a way. Yeah, no, I agree is with that. the by far the more interesting part, which is where you get the revelation about their past and shit. I agree because it appears that he was defeated, right? He gets which although that head. was fucking dope, all of that was awesome. The way it plays out, like I'm not gonna lie, the head about squish that. was killer. Just like laying there, like oh okay, but yeah, once they connect. Mm-hmm. You get the revelation and Kana because she wants to know what happened to Tomo. And she learns and she starts to see those images, you know, on the screen. But simultaneously or in conjunction, it's causing this fusion once again, I guess, between the brothers. See, I don't, I think, like, does it actually fuse them? Because it seems to me at the end that. Tomo still chooses to kill Yatsu. Like, that's the piston driving back and then shoving forward and the explosion happening in front of him. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too. What, yeah, once he connects all those guys, because it it turns into, like, this body horror Mm -hmm. melding tank thing. But, yeah, I could see that where he detonates that, ends that whole... And there didn't seem to be any part of Tomo in that final tank. Yeah, not that I can think of. Just Yatsu, or, or not, I'm there not, didn't yeah, seem yeah, to be yeah, any Yatsu, part of yeah. Yatsu. Right. It, it would appear it was like, what, Kana, Tomu, all those dudes that were, that made mm-hmm. up the tank. And she um, was just riding it even. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She would, had no part in the fusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I, um, I think the ending is, is, it's interesting too, like how it goes from that to them being in like this, uh, I guess a post-apocalyptic kind of landscape, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe dystopian. And there's like, yeah, they just, they like the calm, the peace. And then, like I said, the ending's kind of like a music video. It's kind of neat, but. The ending kind of feels. Do you think it's like finding peace in it? So here's the thing. After. After he is captured and hooked up for the first time and they explain what that machine is, you technically can't trust any of the flashbacks that are beaming from his brain. Right, I mean, all of that stuff was... Because they're fucking with him. Yeah. And they admit they're fucking with him. And because that's part of... Out of yeah, yeah, that's part of how they're accelerating the, the man-to-machine process. So at the end... Now that he is the machine, I think he's mm-hmm. made basically like the Matrix for himself. I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, he's, yeah, he can create whatever reality he wants. But there's a certain amount of him that still exists in the world, so he's probably placing it, yeah. it in the world that he's existing in. Right. Um, I would, it's yeah, almost I like there has to be like a balance to it. I don't know if it's necess- as as cyberpunky as this is. It's early enough that. I don't know if this is necessarily the idea, but in modern terms, you can kind of think of it as he's possibly overlaying a alternate reality, like almost like playing an, an AR game where yeah, it's overlaid yeah. over just where he's 
moving through as a fucking tank. That's wild. Yeah, that's you know what I'm saying. What I mean? It's like, yeah, the, he's it at this point. He whatever he has on his like peaceful blue filter. <laughs> right. But that's right, what right, it. Right, it's right. literally a filter this time. That's yeah. That's really interesting. Like I said, he exists still in our reality as that tank, whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. But yeah, simultaneously he's projecting that what we saw like that at the end with him and his wife and his kid. Mm-hmm. You know, they're together, but there's peace. There's not all this noise and distractions and stuff that would cause him to rage. So there's uh, maybe that's what keeps him or that machine or whatever that fusion. It's like it, it, there's some kind of peace, this tranquility in it, I suppose, because mm-hmm. otherwise it'd be destruction. There's like certain quotes in this. I, I think that was kind of interesting and telling too. Is Yatsu, he says that the strength of his will to kill will always beat mine. You know, and because he knows that, he says, uh, what is it? there's like uh, beauty and destruction, things like that. And he, once he realized that, like, he, he pretty much lets go. Mm-hmm. It's almost you find this interesting. Well, and that's, that's kind of the end scene is he's projecting almost his entire family is finding beauty in the destruction. Yeah, and because they're kind of just walking through it like it's a fucking park. <laughs> so wow, yeah, that is that is really interesting. Like so, this dichotomous view of of I guess these two different worldviews, you know, chaos and and peace or harmony, however you want to balance, you know what I mean? Well, I think, here's the thing, I think the ending, beyond just being potentially a projection of some sort, is is kind of the downer ending when you start thinking about, like, the abuse and the aggression and his rages. Yeah. Because when his wife sees the revelation... And knows everything that happened to him. She starts freaking out because she also realizes that she basically recreated a traumatic memory with him. So now she feels partially guilty for what has everything that has happened since. Yeah. Where hmm. she shouldn't. She has no idea. She has no part in it. It's a circumstantial for for her. And, And he's essentially an abusive spouse at this point. He flies into these rages, even when he's quote unquote trying to save her, when he flies into a rage, he's shooting at her just as much as everyone else. Yeah. It's a blind rage. It's a blind rage. And she has chosen instead Mm -hmm. of severing their relationship to keep on with him basically as an abused spouse who feels tethered to him because now she feels guilty about yeah. everything that's transpired and how it's not his fault. I helped make him this way because I reminded him of this trauma. Yeah. It's, it is this weird guilt and shame for no, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I playing the, I mean, yeah, I try to try to, um, I don't know, humanize this guy's violence and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's weird. Uh, what they call like Stockholm syndrome in a sense, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, anywho, what I wanted to say, what I found interesting too, is thinking about more of a social commentary. I think you brought up a good point with that. It's like, there's more of a telling if you strip some of this down to where it's like, yeah, there's these ramifications, these 
family dynamics that have this rippling effect. You know, if, if things go unchecked or on unspoken or, you know, what are these family secrets to, you know, like I said, this guy doesn't know what his past is. Unfortunately, his past, you know, went unchecked. Mm-hmm. He has his underlying rage. And then when it comes out, you know, his kid and his wife, he loses both of them, essentially, even though, you know, his wife's still with him because of the guilt and the shame and what you've already explained. There's that. There's also the, like, the the long-lost brother and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all this stuff. That has implications. There's usually, like, a, I don't know, almost like this light and, and dark. Like, one has the light, light side, one is the dark side. Not necessarily, but, mm-hmm. you know, one tends to have, like, this... I don't know, it was like pulling in to make this other person, you know, like, I want to say maybe reveal them their real self, you know, their true nature. Mm-hmm. They're suppressing it, perhaps. I don't know. But there's a little bit of that in his films. Yeah, it's weird. In some ways, it's like the first Tetsuo, which has a fucking weird ending <laughs> yeah, that <it> is. <laughs> is totally about destruction is kind of the happier, upbeat ending, because you can read it very easily, as we talked about, as this guy coming to terms with and accepting that he's homosexual. (laughs) Yeah, and that's okay, whatever. And in some ways, the end of that movie is a celebration of his kind of fusing with his true self in a way. Right, yeah, finding his, yeah, true nature, I suppose. This one... Ends with Jesus, a mostly happy picture. The family's all back together, which is something that right. But that's just a projection. It's just a projection. That's all. And depending is. on how you read it, most of the ways you can read it are dark and lonely in some way. No, that is very sad because it's, you know, like I said, in our reality, it's just this monster, this creation, this monster, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. however you want to describe it. But it is projecting this image of what it, I like I said, I guess, finds as, as peaceful, mm-hmm. as perfect, if you will. So, yeah, that is that is sad. It's very somber. So, yeah, not a very happy ending. <laughs> you know, which, once again, like I said, if I'm looking and at And here's it, the thing. If you want to read the ending as happy and yeah, then that's what's that's really fine. going on, I can't say that that's not happening yeah but i just don't understand how but to be honest i don't understand how on a lot of this movie because his dad was doing magic and fusing them with fucking guns like i know that's really interesting to me it's like that's a whole nother story dude that never gets explained that's okay to me that's what more or less gave birth to like tokyo gore police and films Mm -hmm. like that you know it's like okay maybe that's more of um might as well be the engineer yeah fuck yeah that could be the og engineer Mm -hmm. you're right so, interestingly enough, that helps inspire other stories because maybe somebody else wanted to explore that aspect of the film, and that's okay. That's what I like about this. There's a lot of different things to explore in terms of, you know, themes and things of that nature. There's also ways of, of reading social commentaries, which we've already explored in Tetsuo, which I think carries over here. Something I didn't notice, I don't think we brought this up, was... That uh, Emperor Hirohito's rule ended. I think he died in 89. Okay. So there was some unrest, you know, politically, of course, going on around that time as well. So, yeah. And, and they're having a transition of, like you said, modernization. 
technology is in the forefront now. There's this big boom. Internet's right on the cusp of really, you know, and all this this innovation. And we, we should know what, what Japan has to offer in terms of technology. It's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine there's certain feelings people had from older generations, newer generations, somewhere in between those generations. And he's probably somewhere right dab in the middle of it. And his films kind of express that, I think, in a really interesting way. You know, that's that's more underground kind of cult status, shit like that, which, you know. You know what we haven't talked about yet? Gunplay. Ah, oh, man. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that was so wild, man. I was not expecting that shit. No, I mean, we, we've alluded to the fact that, the, you know, you can use your, your arm or your hand as a gun, but in this way, no, the dad is getting freaky with the mom and introduces a real gun. Yeah, it's it's right after he's successful in getting Yatsu to kill the dog. Right, the mom has a freak out. We see, you know. Yeah, and then the next scene is... And he's like, I did it. And he's getting off on his own ego more than anything and introduces right. the gun because, once again, like I said, it's about his own ego. He yeah, He's the guy that did this and created it's like human a, weapons yeah, it's, out of his kids. It's a symbol of power and ego and... Yeah. Narcissism, I would imagine. He's even telling Yatsu, he's like, you got to do this so that I can be the one, like, I'm going to, you know, I'm the one that made human weapons or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so he introduces it, and he doesn't know, like, look, I don't know the basics of gunplay. I'm not into that shit because I know how powerful guns are. That shit's scary as fuck. I couldn't maintain an erection. (laughs) No, man, that's like... I didn't know the threat of death <laughs> right at your doorstep. Whether or not anybody ever gets to see it, I once filmed a scene where, like, I knew the gun was empty, but I had to point a gun at a person in a fucking Western, and it was uncomfortable as fuck because I've grown up with guns. I know how fucking powerful those fuckers are. Yeah, it I is went hunting. Thought. I don't want to point that at somebody. Like, it's fucked up. It's a really bad feeling. <laughs> No, exactly, because, uh, you know, yeah, that has ramifications, possibly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know what you're saying. So, like, yeah, no, that ain't happening. But, so I don't know if he was doing gunplay right, but he wasn't, because he kills her. (laughs) And he, it does seem like it's accidental on his part. Yeah, I think he just... But the kids see. Yeah, he got way into it. Kids saw it. Our homeboy raged out, killed his dad. Can you talk about... Death <laughs> being prolonged on screen. Wow. What I think is interesting cool. about that flashback is that he unloads on dad to kill him because dad killed mom and he saw it in, in a super fucked up way. Like it's bad enough to walk in on your parents fucking it. Jesus, I know that's like already traumatizing for most. Yeah. Much less like your mom definitely not being into it and arguably being maritally raped. Yeah. Uh, anyway. No, I mean, that's true. But, yeah. but the interesting thing about that flashback is that as he starts unloading and the bullets just keep coming and he fucking riddles dad for like 30 seconds, which some of those close-ups are really fucking cool, too. Yeah, they are. Mom is standing back up and he's killing both their parents. Yeah. And we know we can't trust his memories. Right. So that's a solid point, too, because I'm like, does that really kill the mom? Or did he just rage out? Right. Because we see what he does when he does rage out. He just blindly... It's indiscriminate. 
Right, you just blind rage, indiscriminate, you're right. Yeah, possibly. Who knows? Yeah, you can't really trust the, the narrator all the time in this at all. Because no, of what, I think there's times you can. Right, and then there's definitely times you can't. I watched through the second time hoping that maybe the color filters would tell us when or when not, but I don't think that is no. necessarily the case. There's times when the color filters are used just to indicate a mood change even. So. Right, yes, like I think, yeah, there's just a, little, a, a tone shift or, yeah, mm-hmm. um, they're conveying a mood. I was really hoping that there was going to be like uh, a tell. Oh, cool, yeah. yeah, that would be neat, but nah, I don't think he did. But no, it I, does seem like the orange is more likely to be a lie, mm-hmm. and that scene is all orange. But that's the best I could come up yeah. with. Perhaps I think films like this definitely, you know, deserve a couple different views. Not that yet, like maybe I don't have to watch them all consecutively, but. That's what makes this fun is there's always something to pick up on within the, the frames, sometimes outside the frames of the film, stuff like that. At least it gives us something to chew on. Yeah. You know, and that, that's kind of the fun thing about his films in general. It's a surprisingly thinky film for essentially being the dumbed down action version of the first one. Yeah. I mean, he even said he wanted to make this more of like an urban suspense thriller it kind of honestly kind of worked yeah no i agree there's horror elements because he's like you know there's like this demon horror story in it you know with this guy killing his fucking kid and you know all this like you already we, we've gone you know in links at this point with the whole family dynamic but I, once again that's the horrific side of it and the impact it has at the end you know mm-hmm. guy lost pretty much all you could say all of his humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the, the like one last moment where he's <laughs> trying to just grasp the straws. As a, <laughs> yeah, that dude. His wife denies him that. Yeah. Shoof. That's tough. But yeah, you're right. So, I mean, kudos to him because it's not easy to do a sequel, you know. Here's something else I, I was wondering. I was wondering if, if maybe I'm reaching here. It's like, I wonder if this is, uh, is this the Japanese Hellbound? No oh, like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> kind of what happens, like, you have this, you know, these this fusion with this character, and, you know, it, uh, what I'm getting at, it's just like, there's some body horror elements to it, there's some S&M, BDS&M, mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, kind of shit going on. There's this weird family dynamic going on with mm-hmm. brothers and, you know, things of that nature. But I'm more or less being a little jokey. But I was like, they have some similarities. Yeah. They're not the same film, of course. But no. there's some interesting parallels in themes, I think, perhaps. I mean, this isn't like said shot for shot or nothing like that. But they share some interesting themes. Yeah. Fuck. I don't know. All I, What I know is I dug this fucking movie. No, it's fun. Um, Really decent sequel once again. Um, We've done several sequels to films at this point, and this is right up there with them. I'd say, you know, if you like Tetsuo, (laughs) this is another good one. And even if you're not familiar with Tetsuo, you can watch this and it's still get something out of it. Like, it's not necessary to, to know what Tetsuo is about. I have terrible handwriting. I've been trying to figure out a couple of my notes as I've been looking at on page. I just yeah. figured out one of them. We might have mentioned that this isn't 
even close to being in the same league as homoerotic as the first one. But I still thought it was really funny that when they started fucking with his memories at first, he grows a hate boner from his heart. That's pretty funny. A gun hate boner from his heart. We, we did talk about like fear boners and stuff like that. This would be a prime example of that. Like this dude is raging out. So, so much that it's like kind of exciting him at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, it's kind of neat. Um, I did get to see a little bit of uh, some interviews that he had, I guess, right after this film, somewhere around, you know, early 90s, whatnot. And uh, he talked about how he formed the whole Kaiju theater, which mm. is kind of an interesting story. So he said in his teens, he liked to film. That's pretty obvious. And then in his 20s, he worked for an ad agency, and that's when he formed the Kaiju theater, basically so he could continue to act and, you know, direct and do all that stuff so what he did was he and that little theater group they built a hut out in the middle of this you know i guess <laughs> out in the middle of the woods or whatever and they made it look like a sea monster and uh hence why they use the kaiju because that means strange beast mm-hmm. you know okay. and they did a couple of plays one of them happened to be the adventures of uh Denchu kozu which uh, was a third play they used that as an adaptation later on for a TV movie where the lead in this one, the Taniguchi guy, Tomoro, he was in that play. They liked him in that. They cast him in the adventures of, I just said, that Denchu. And then they cast him in the film adaptation for, it's called uh, Futsu Saizu no Kaijin, which is the Phantom of the Regular Size, which was the prototype for what Tetsuo is. Mm, so those mm-hmm. two films basically kind of give you a precursor to what Tetsuo is. So I watched a little bit of The Adventures of Denchu, mm-hmm. and you can see a little bit. It's kind of interesting, man, because it's like these vampires in Tokyo, and this guy's carrying around this like big pole. Okay. And there's this female character who also is helping kind of guide him and protecting him in a sense. So you're getting to see a little bit of play with more like um, structural things with this character. Okay. More so than the fusion, but you're starting to see like little glimpses of that. And even like his stop motion with the way their characters move and shit like that throughout the, the streets. It's kind of neat. So, um, yeah, it was kind of neat knowing that. So speaking of stop motion real quick, I feel like both the world of Tetsuo and Tetsuo 2 are potentially just... Yeah one of the levels of world in Mad God. Mm. Man, that's... There's no reason not. I know, that'd be fucking dope, right? <laughs> like, a little, little stop off here in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. Also, the fucking surreal, fucking crazy metal squirming all over the place. And I like, really like that. That's really I cool. fucking loved all of those sequences. I loved the bit where when it was doing it and he was getting pulled into position to be the final like tank form. Yeah. And he does a really good job of, you know, visualizing that, making it look really good on film. And you know, that it has to take time to mm-hmm. put people in position and frame all that stuff. And so, you know, it, it really does take a, an effort to pull this kind of stuff off. Even if the budget was like six or 10 times that of Tetsuo is still, mm-hmm. I wasn't much really. But it's still kind of neat. It's it's a interesting way of filmmaking, 
I don't know how often you'll be able to see this kind of filmmaking, like this guerrilla style and some aspects. We talked about it with 964. Mm-hmm. Like, they were getting away with a lot of stuff, just shooting-wise. But um, it really did give way to some of these films that we're seeing now. That are, I mean, <laughs> they're kind of fantastical in a sense. I mean, they, they really mm-hmm. have kind of overdone it in a sense, but in a fun way. And they yeah. made it really fun. Whereas this is, for me, this kind of still feels... I don't know. I won't say taboo, but if I were a kid and I'd seen this, you know, back then, it would make me feel a certain way, almost like I was watching something I probably shouldn't have been. Even after the success he found with the first one, and, you know, once again, this is still a small budget, but it's six to ten times the budget of the first one. So even with that and the time in between, this still manages to feel very underground. It, it still is underground. It does. There's a lot of things that he did that still, yeah, feel that way. And so it always aesthetic. feels kind of dirty to, to dip your head in there. I know. I don't think he sacrificed anything in that sense. Like his mm-hmm. principles or having to, uh, I don't know, kowtow to somebody's ideas. Like, nah, I want to do it my way. I just have a little bit more budget to play with mm-hmm. this time around. Which is nice. You know, it might not have won people over, but I still think this is a solid fucking film, man. Yeah, same here. I dig this. I'm looking forward to whenever we get to the third one. I'm looking forward to as we get to more crazy fucking Japanese splatter and body horror and cyberpunk. Yeah. I really want to watch Meatball Machine. That movie is wild as shit. Um, what it, What's really fun for me is like I bought that box set mm-hmm. a while back, so I finally had a chance to crack it open. You know, instead of just just because it's like, nah, I get to finally watch some films in here. So it's giving me a reason to check that out. And there's a really neat little book that comes along with it with some really cool, like, you know, shots from the films and little essays and shit. So, yeah. You know what? I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, if you have seen it, then we can talk about it to sort of end off this episode as a little bonus to anyone who's gotten to this point. And if you haven't, then I know what we're doing once we're done recording. Okay. Did you see the Terrifier 2 trailer? I didn't. Then I know what we're doing when we're done recording. <laughs> All right, sweet. And to everyone out there, that means go watch the Terrifier 2 trailer. Yes. Even though I haven't seen it yet, but yes. That being said, we also know what we're doing next week. And the week after. I know, and then the week after that. And then the week after that. Yeah, that's true. And honestly... Maybe the week after that, too, because that might run into something that we've talked about. Oh, man, we've got. Well, yeah, we definitely have some plans. That's just kind of fun. <laughs> we might have to interrupt one of those just to do. I, I, I don't know how the timing lines up with like the but, release of some of these things. But yeah, we'll figure it out. We're going to keep with the theme of body horror. Yeah. Hell yeah. Next week will be David Cronenberg's The Fly, <laughs> which mild spoilers historically is the only movie to ever make me tap out permanently <laughs> i haven't finished watching it wow. in 20 years it's gonna be fun i don't know if that's gonna be the case anymore it's been a long time yeah, i've seen a point. lot of shit since then <laughs> i think uh i think you'll make it i i think i'm gonna I make be- it too i'm not even i believe in you <laughs> i'm positive i'm gonna make it I'm going to see how much I'm squirming in oh, my yeah, seat. Like, it, it has There's a difference moments. between 
making it and like being super fucking uncomfortable no, I watching completely it. agree with that. So <laughs> we're going to see what happens. Hopefully that's an incentive for you all to tune in next time. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Or, you know, maybe to sign up for the Patreon so you can listen to it right now. Oh, yes. Don't wait. Don't wait. If you want to find out how I can handle the fly, listen to it right now. Shit, we know what's after that, too, don't we? We do. What was it? Titane. That's right. Julie Darcano's follow-up to Raw. Super fucking excited. That's all I'm going to say about it right now. I know, man. This, this is fun. We've got a good string of films coming up. This one kind of, you know, help kickstarts it, and I'm looking forward to it. Wait, we also know. What's after Titane? Oh, well, we may have found a little gem a long time oh, ago. Oh, shit. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, too, man. Back, Scott Shermer. Yeah, it's going to be fun. to found. Super excited for that shit. That's all what's coming up. Like I said, if you want to find out how well I handled the fly... Dollar a month. <laughs> Dollar a month, people. Patreon.com slash fried squirms. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried squirms. Out. Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, we highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Uh, scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. Uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, the easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. Uh, you can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. I'm not going to give you all those ats. So with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace.